Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Also, welcome to the beginning of Titanic Month here on the channel. Today, we will be discussing the history of the eldest Olympic-class liner, RMS Olympic. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, wartime violence, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today, there will be some terms in the French and German languages in which I am not fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. One more very important note before we begin. All three ships of the Olympic class of the White Star Line are beloved by many, including myself. There is an enormous amount of information on RMS Olympic, some of it conflicting. I will be pulling from many sources and going off of the most common findings among researchers. Please note that as soon as I click post on this video, the information will be outdated. With all of the Olympic class ships, there is new information coming out all the time. There are many details I might leave out for brevity's sake, and no, I don't do that to hide information or confuse. If corrections are to be made in the comments section or additional information added, please feel free to do so respectfully. There's no need to get nasty with one another over 110-year-old vessels that none of us were personally there to witness or record information about. We want to continue to keep the comments section a safe, fun place to talk about our love of ships. Now that the housekeeping is out of the way, let's get into RMS Olympic. As with many ship enthusiasts, I got my start with loving ocean liners and all things ship-related with Titanic and her sisters. Olympic has a special place in my heart since she was such a badass soldier and the fact that she never sunk, despite what the conspiracy theorists might say. RMS Olympic was the first ship built for the Olympic class for the White Star Line by Harland and Wolfe, construction beginning on the ship in yard number 400 on December 16, 1908 in Belfast, Ireland. She was owned by the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company, the company that oversaw the White Star Line and she would cost $7.5 million to build. At that time, Olympic was the largest vessel ever built for the White Star Line. She was 882 feet and nine inches long and had a beam of 92 feet and nine inches, a height of 175 feet from the keel to the top of the funnels and a draft of 34 feet and seven inches, spanning nine decks, eight of them being for passengers and one for crew members only. She displaced 52,067 tons and 45,324 gross registered tons when she was built, displacing 46,358 gross registered tons after 1913 and 46,439 gross registered tons after 1920. She could carry a maximum of 2,435 passengers split between three classes with a crew of 950 men. If you remember us talking about SS Laurentic a while back, then you'll remember that she was the first ship to have the engine setup that would go into RMS Olympic and the rest of the Olympic class, and that would make these ships incredibly fast. 
RMS Olympic was equipped with 24 double-ended or six furnace and five single-ended or three furnace scotch boilers that originally ran off of coal and would be switched to oil burning in 1919. Two four-cylinder triple expansion reciprocating steam engines produced 25,000 horsepower each for the two outboard bronze three-bladed propellers, turning them at 85 revolutions per minute. One low-pressure turbine would take the steam created by this in order to produce 15,000 horsepower to power the middle bronze four-bladed propeller. In total, there was 65,000 horsepower being produced at maximum revolutions with the propellers. That's an insane amount of power, and this power allowed her to reach 21 knots for her service speed in 1911 and 23 knots in 1933 after refit. The interesting thing about Olympic's propellers is there is a viral picture supposedly of Titanic's propellers that is actually Olympic's. Titanic had a set of three triple-bladed propellers. None of them had four blades. If you see a picture with four blades on the middle propeller and it's claiming to be Titanic, it is actually Olympic. Funny enough, most pictures of the interior of Titanic is also of Olympic because they figured the ships looked so similar that they didn't need to photograph Titanic's interior. RMS Olympic and the rest of her class came about because of a mid-1907 conversation between White Star Lines chairman J. Bruce Ismay and the American financier J.P. Morgan who owned the International Mercantile Marine Company that bought White Star Line. Because of the success of Cunard Line's RMS Lusitania and RMS Mauritania, which were the fastest passenger liners at the time, White Star Line needed something to even the score. White Star Line was always known to lean into luxury and size in order to impress their customers, and thus the largest, most luxurious liners were conceptualized. The Olympic class was to replace the now outdated Teutonic class liners, RMS Teutonic and RMS Majestic from 1890. Teutonic would be replaced by Olympic and Majestic by Titanic, who would be brought back in after the sinking of Titanic in 1912. Harland and Wolf were given a lot of leeway when it came to designing these luxurious liners, and it came down to Lord Peary, a director of both White Star Line and Harland and Wolf, famous and beloved naval architect Thomas Andrews, the managing director for Harland and Wolf's design department, Alexander Carlyle, the shipyard's chief draftsman and general manager, and his responsibilities included the equipment, decorations, and all general arrangements, including an efficient lifeboat davit design, and lastly, Edward Wilding, Thomas Andrews' deputy who was responsible for calculating the ship's design, trim, and stability. After the final drawings were presented on July 29, 1908, Olympic was given the go-ahead, being put in Yard 400 and Titanic in 401. The construction on Olympic would begin three months before Titanic to lessen the pressure on the construction crews. Due to the First World War, many years would pass between the launch of the first two Olympic-class sisters and Britannic, who would be completed as a hospital ship. RMS Olympic would be launched on October 20, 1910, not yet painted in her White Star Line color scheme, instead being painted white and gray for photographic purposes. It was done so that the picture could pick up all the lines of the steel plating and the detailing better. Her launching was filmed, and the footage has miraculously survived all these years. She wasn't christened before being launched, which was standard for White Star Line's vessels. They didn't christen their ships. 
Following her launch, her hull was painted black with a red keel and white superstructure, just like Titanic would be. She was then dry docked so she could finish being fitted. Though she would have four smokestacks, only three were functional. The fourth was entirely aesthetic and ventilation of the ship. As for her lifeboats, this was before the Titanic disaster and so there weren't enough for everyone on board initially. The arrangement in 1911 and 1912 was identical to that of RMS Titanic. 16 regular lifeboats with four collapsible boats nearest the bow. RMS Olympic and RMS Titanic would share many of the same amenities aboard the liners with a few key differences. Both had beautiful grand staircases that were identical to one another, with photographs of Titanic's staircase actually being that of Olympics. Remember earlier I told you much of Titanic's interior photos were of Olympic to save time. Both had a la carte restaurants for their first class, a veranda cafe complete with palm trees, Turkish bath, swimming pool, gymnasium, and first class cabins that were extra spacious and luxurious, with some even having the luxury of a private bathroom, which wasn't common for 1911. Titanic and later on Britannic would be altered based upon Olympic's first year of service, with some key differences being Olympic's promenade deck being more open and unsheltered along the entire length of the ship. So they fixed that with Titanic. The B-Deck first class promenade decks that were installed on Olympic were barely used before all of the ample promenade deck space on A-Deck. So this feature was eliminated on Titanic and instead there were ensuite bathrooms installed and the Cafe Parisian. Olympic did not have promenade deck space for her two luxury parlor suites on B-Deck, lacked the D-Deck reception room for the a la carte restaurant and didn't have a first class gangway entrance on B-Deck. Most of the other changes are minor or cosmetic, so we won't be covering them, but just know that the ships were nearly identical. And after the sinking of Titanic, there were significant changes made to Olympic in 1913 in order to match the luxury that was enjoyed on Titanic, as well as safety regulations like bulkheads being raised to B-deck and extra lifeboats. Following her completion, it was on to sea trials for RMS Olympic, which would take place on May 29, 1911. No speed tests were carried out for her, but they did test her maneuverability, wireless telegraphy, and compass. She passed her sea trial successfully, of course, and then left Belfast, Ireland on May 31, 1911 for Liverpool, where her port of registry was. Her UK identification number was 131346, her code letters were HSRP until 1933, and her call sign was MKC until 1933, in which it changed to GLSQ. For some good publicity, White Star Line timed this voyage to coincide with the launch of Titanic, and it successfully created a lot of buzz around the sisters. She spent a day in Liverpool, where she was open to the public to explore and view the beauty of the vessel and all her fine furnishings and amenities, and then it was off to Southampton. She arrived there on June 3, 1911, where she would be readied for her maiden voyage. There, glee and enthusiasm spread from her crew to the newspapers, all glowing about the new vessel. The deepwater dock at Southampton, then known as the White Star Dock, had been specifically designed and constructed in order to accommodate Olympic and her giant sister ships, and it opened sometime in 1911. She left Southampton on June 14, 1911 for her maiden voyage, her first port of call being in Cherbourg and Queenstown, very similar to Titanic, where she would embark more passengers. She reached New York City swiftly and without incident on June 21, 1911, being captained by Edward Smith, 
who would die the following year captaining the Titanic. Ship designer Thomas Andrews and a number of engineers with Bruce Ismay and Harlan Wolf's Guarantee Group, essentially the Quality Assurance Department, were present for her voyage and return voyage to see to it that the ship was healthy and successful. Unfortunately for Mr. Andrews, he too would die aboard Titanic the following year. RMS Olympic was the largest ship in the world and part of the first class of superliners and thus her maiden voyage was the talk of town, gaining considerable worldwide attention from both the public and the press. When she arrived in New York, she was again open to the public for visitation and visit the people did. Over 8,000 people toured the ship. And if that isn't baffling enough, more than 10,000 people showed up to see her off from New York Harbor on her return to Southampton. During her third crossing, interestingly enough, an observer for Cunard Line was aboard, looking for inspiration from the competition for the then under construction Aquitania, which was a third sister ship for Lusitania and Mauritania. RMS Olympic's career wasn't all sunshine and roses, however. Her first major accident happening on her fifth voyage on September 20, 1911, when she was running alongside HMS Hawk in the Solent. RMS Olympic turned starboard, but much like a huge semi-trailer truck, she had to take wide turns. The master of HMS Hawk was surprised by this and wasn't able to take action in time. HMS Hawk's bow rammed face first into the starboard side of the Olympic near her stern, and she had to close her watertight doors, two compartments flooding and her propeller shaft being twisted in the impact. She was able to return safely to Southampton despite settling slightly in the stern, and no one was killed or injured, thankfully. HMS Hawk was severely damaged and damn near capsized, but she was repaired. For anyone wondering the fate of HMS Hawk, she would be sunk by a U-boat in October of 1914. Let us know if you want us to cover her. We would love to. Captain Edward J. Smith was in charge of Olympic during this accident. Him and two other crew members, stewardess Violet Jessup and stoker Arthur John Priest, would also be present for Titanic's sinking. In fact, Jessup and Priest also survived the sinking of Britannic in 1916. They were there for the three worst mishaps for the Olympic class, and they have some interesting stories. Olympic, of course, was to blame for the incident, and the theory from the Royal Navy was that the suction of the massive displacement of Olympic pulled Hawk in. It ended up being financially disastrous for White Star Line, with legal proceedings brewing that ultimately slapped White Star Line with the bill since the ship was technically under the control of the harbor pilot. White Star Line all of a sudden found themselves swamped with bills and having to repair the ship, as well as keeping her out of service cutting their revenue. There was a positive, however. Because Olympic was able to take such a large hit and not sink, it made it the notion that the Olympic class was unsinkable, practically gospel. Olympic was patched up over two long weeks before limping back to Belfast, Ireland, for more serious repairs. In order to expedite the Olympic's repairs, Harland and Wolf replaced her damaged propeller shaft with the one meant for Titanic, and this delayed the completion of Olympic's younger sister. She was back on the seas by November 20th, 1911, but she suffered another setback on February 24th, 1912, after she lost a propeller blade while on an eastbound voyage returning from New York City, once again needing Harland and Wolf to repair her propeller. Once again, to make sure Olympic was back on the ocean as soon as possible, the propeller was taken from Titanic, delaying Titanic's maiden voyage from March 20th to three weeks later on April 10th. 
As we know, Titanic wouldn't make it home from this voyage, but during the disaster, Olympic was somewhat involved. As most of us know, Captain Edward Smith was moved from RMS Olympic to RMS Titanic to helm her on its maiden voyage and was to retire afterward. Being that he was the Commodore for the White Star Line and had a cult following from passengers who adored being on ships mastered by him. So, Olympic's captain as of April in 1912 was Captain Herbert James Haddock. And on April 14, 1912, RMS Olympic was returning from New York City heading east. Her wireless operator, Mr. Ernest James Moore, received the distress call from Titanic, who was approximately 505 miles east by north of Olympic. After receiving the distress call from her sister ship, Haddock calculated a new course and ordered full steam ahead to rescue Titanic. Unfortunately, there was no way Olympic would make it in time. RMS Olympic was roughly 100 nautical miles from Titanic's last known location when Captain Rostron of RMS Carpathia reached out to inform Captain Haddock that Carpathia was on the scene, stating that Olympic should turn around. The rescue was already concluded and there was nothing else the crew of Olympic could do, stating, quote, All boats accounted for. About 675 souls saved. Titanic foundered about 2.20 a.m. Upon Rostron's request, the message was forwarded from Olympic to White Star Line and Cunard Line, with Rostron stating he was on his way back to New York City. Because of this, Olympic acted as a sort of clearing room for radio messages. Haddock and RMS Olympic did offer to take passengers back to Southampton, but was refused because rightfully so, Ismay thought that passengers would be traumatized because Olympic and Titanic were nearly identical. So Olympic turned around and headed for Southampton as scheduled, canceling all scheduled concerts to respect the victims of the Titanic disaster. She arrived safely and without incident on April 21st, 1912. As for the American and British inquiries into Titanic sinking, Olympic was more than open to helping out. Being the ships were almost identical except for a few small differences, Deputations from both inquiries took tours to inspect Olympic's bulkheads, watertight doors, lifeboats, and other identical equipment. There were also sea tests performed for the British inquiry in May that would figure out how quickly the ship could manage turning two points at various speeds. They did this to establish how long it would have taken for Titanic to turn, assuming they tried as soon as they sighted the iceberg. Because of these inquiries and various recreated experiments later, we have so much information on how the Titanic reacted during the disaster and to the iceberg. Because of Titanic's severe lack of lifeboats, 1,496 lives were lost. So, being that the ships had an identical, insufficient number of lifeboats, Olympic was hurriedly equipped with additional collapsible lifeboats upon returning to the UK. At the end of April, she was scheduled to sail to New York City once more when 284 of the ship's firemen went on strike, because of the fear that the ship's new collapsibles weren't seaworthy, and so 100 non-union workers were hired quickly, with more being hired on from Liverpool. However, they had every right to strike. Many of the roughly 40 collapsible lifeboats were rotten and wouldn't open, being acquired for Olympic from troop ships. The crewmen sent a request to the Southampton manager for White Star Line, asking that these unacceptable lifeboats be replaced with safer wooden ones. The manager would send back a reply stating that these collapsibles were just fine, being already deemed seaworthy by a Board of Trade inspector. To enormously paraphrase, the concerned workers were essentially told to suck it up. But they wouldn't, and they would refuse to work, protesting for the safer equipment that they deserved. 
A deputation of strikers witnessed a test of four of these collapsible lifeboats on April 25, 1912, 11 days after the sinking of RMS Titanic. One was deemed unseaworthy and was replaced. But the union workers had been replaced and were now striking to have their positions back as well as the lifeboats replaced. And White Star Line essentially gave them all the finger. 54 sailors left the ship, objecting to the non-union crew, claiming the non-union workers were unqualified and refusing to sail alongside them. Because of all of this turmoil, the sailing that had been scheduled was canceled. The 54 sailors would end up being arrested and charged with mutiny as soon as they reached the shore. On May 4, 1912, magistrates from Portsmouth did find the mutineers guilty but discharged them without a fine or imprisonment because all of the other circumstances. White Star Line rehired the strikers and allowed them to work on Olympic when she sailed on May 15th, fearing the public would side with the workers over the shipping giant. On October 9, 1912, Olympic was withdrawn from service for refits that I discussed earlier. She was refitted with more lifeboats as well as extra davits. Five bulkheads were raised, an inner watertight skin was added to the boiler and engine rooms, and an extra bulkhead was added, among other things. She was also fitted with some of the more popular features from Titanic, like a Café Parisian, enlarging the a la carte restaurant, and adding more cabins on B-deck as well as private bathrooms. Her ending tonnage was 46,439 gross registered tons, displacing 111 tons more than Titanic did. She would return to the seas in March of 1913 with her new refit and focus on safety heavily advertised, only briefly regaining the title of the largest liner on the seas before losing it once again to SS Imperator in June. On August 4, 1914, Great Britain would enter World War I. As we know, ocean liners were frequently requisitioned for wartime service. An RMS Olympics career is not only fantastic, but interesting. And it proves that she was the biggest badass of the three Olympic-class sisters. In the beginning, she remained a commercial liner under Captain Haddock, being painted slate gray as a wartime precaution to protect against U-boats. Her portholes were also blocked, and lights on deck were turned off to make the ship as invisible as possible. Hastily, they changed her schedule to terminate in Liverpool instead of Southampton, later being changed again to Glasgow, Scotland. Her first few voyages were packed with Americans fleeing from Europe, with eastbound voyages returning to the UK being far less booked. By mid-October of 1914, her bookings were falling dramatically because of the threat of German U-boats becoming more serious by the day, and people were right to be scared. Her last commercial voyage before becoming a soldier was October 21, 1914, and only 153 brave souls boarded her. Look at Lusitania. That is a large example of the power of the U-boat. We did cover her. Check the card in the upper right-hand corner for that one. During this final commercial voyage, she was near Lough Swilly off the north coast of Ireland on her sixth day of her voyage on October 27th, when she would receive a distress call from a battleship, the HMS Audacious. She'd struck a mine off Tory Island and was sinking, with HMS Liverpool in the company of Audacious. Olympic headed out to help, taking on 250 of Audacious's crew, and another destroyer, HMS Fury, attached a tow cable from Audacious to Olympic, with Olympic heading toward Lough Swilly with Audacious in tow. However, there were problems. Audacious's steering gear failed as it took on more water, and the cable became unattached. After painstakingly reattaching it, they tried once more. 
only for the cable to get tangled up in HMS Liverpool's propeller, cutting the cable. By 5 p.m., the quarter deck, or the ship's upper deck near the stern traditionally reserved for officers, was underwater, and so it was decided to leave HMS Audacious behind. The remaining crew was evacuated on RMS Olympic and HMS Liverpool. At 8.55 p.m., there was a loud explosion heard echoing over the water on board Audacious, and finally she sank. Admiral Sir John Wallace, commander of the Home Fleet, which was a fleet of the Royal Navy that operated from the UK's territorial waters from 1902 until 1967, until it was merged with the Mediterranean Fleet, was nervous about the public learning of HMS Audacious's sinking, so Olympic was held in custody in Loft Swilly for the time being. Passengers other than HMS Audacious's crew and Chief Surgeon John Beaumont were not allowed to disembark, and no outside communications were allowed. It was a long, anxious wait until November 2nd when Olympic was finally allowed to proceed to Belfast and released her passengers. When she returned to Belfast, it was initially White Star Line's plan to lay up Olympic until the end of the war, as to not risk their beautiful liner, having her sit at Harlan and Wolf with her little sister, RMS Britannic. However, in May of 1915, she was requisitioned by the Admiralty to work alongside Cunard's RMS Mauritania and Aquitania, the sister ships of RMS Lusitania, in order to be used as a troop transport ship. Originally, the Admiralty didn't want to use large ocean liners like Olympic as troop transport ships because their large size made them more vulnerable to enemy attacks. However, they were short on ships except for ocean liners, and so these beautiful passenger ships found themselves on the front lines, having their fine furnishings and finishes removed and kept for safekeeping until after the war. At this time, Britannic was finished as a hospital ship. Stay tuned to the last week of April when we cover her. Olympic was armed and dangerous now. She had 12-pounders and 4.7-inch guns, being converted into a troop ship with the capability of transporting up to 6,000 troops. To remind you, her original capacity for peacetime service was 2,435, so 6,000 troops was a much higher number. Now, as a soldier, she was known as HMT, Hired Military Transport, 2810 being commanded by Captain Bertram Fox Hayes. She left Liverpool with 6,000 soldiers heading to Mudros, Greece for the Gallipoli Campaign. The Gallipoli Campaign, or at least the Sparks Notes version, was a military campaign in the Gallipoli Peninsula from February 17, 1915 to January 9, 1916 to weaken the Ottoman Empire. On October 1st, Olympic happened upon lifeboats bobbing in the waves off Cape Matapan. These lifeboats were from the French ship Provincia, which had been sunk by U-boat that morning, with 34 survivors being saved by HMT Olympic. Though this effort was heroic, the Admiralty criticized Hayes for stopping to help these 34 men, accusing him of endangering the ship by having her stop in waters where U-boats were actively patrolling. As for the ship's defenses, her speed was considered paramount, so being stopped would have made her easy to sink. As for the French, Vice Admiral Louis de du Fournet awarded Hayes with the Gold Medal of Honor for his actions, as he should have been. Olympic would end up making several more trooping journeys to the Mediterranean until early 1916, when the Gallipoli campaign would be abandoned entirely. 
HMT 2810 would be considered in 1916 for use transporting troops to India via the Cape of Good Hope, which is a rocky headland on the Atlantic coast of the Cape Peninsula in South Africa. But following an investigation, it was found that her coal bunkers, which were designed for transatlantic journeys, would not hold sufficient coal to get her all the way to India at a reasonable speed. So instead, the ship was chartered by the Canadian government in 1916 and 1917 to transport troops from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Great Britain. It was 1917 when she would gain six-inch guns and my favorite paint scheme, the Dazzle Camouflage. Her Dazzle colors, despite popular debate, were brown, dark blue, light blue, and white. Olympic visited Halifax frequently, specifically to Pier 2 in Halifax Harbor, and this made her a favorite sight in the city. She was even painted in Pier 2 by group of seven artist Arthur Lismer several times. There was even a large dance hall there named after her, being called Olympic Gardens. And amazingly, it is still in operation. And when the U.S. joined the war, Olympic would transport Americans to Europe as well. Now, my friends, we come to one of the highlights of Olympic's story in my humble opinion. This is where she truly shines as a badass. She was en route for France in the English Channel in the early morning hours of May 12, 1918, carrying U.S. troops and still being mastered by Captain Hayes. Around 1,600 feet in the distance ahead of her, the crew saw a surfaced U-boat. HMT Olympic went on the hunt. The gunners opened fire, and Olympic turned to ram the U-boat. If she was to sink, she wasn't going down without a fight. Seeing this massive ocean liner barreling toward them, the U-boat crash-dived to 98 feet down and turned to face parallel to Olympic. Almost immediately after this, Olympic struck the submarine just aft of the conning tower with her portside propeller, slicing through U-103's pressure hull like a hot knife through butter. U-103 was screwed. Her crew blew her ballast tanks, scuttled, and abandoned the doomed submarine. HMT Olympic brushed off the men bobbing in the waves, continuing on to Cherbourg. As for the 31 surviving crew of U-103, their distress flare was seen by USS Davis, and they were picked up. Olympic returned to Southampton for repairs, with her prow twisted to one side and two hull plates dented, but she wasn't breached. After the Germans were picked up by the Americans, it was found that the crew of U-103 had been preparing to torpedo HMT Olympic when they were spotted, with the submariners unable to flood the two stern torpedo tubes. For his service and handling of the situation, Captain Hayes of Olympic was awarded the DSO, or Distinguished Service Order. The DSO is a military decoration in the UK and formerly the Commonwealth that was awarded for meritorious or distinguished service by officers of the armed forces during wartime, usually in actual combat. Some American soldiers who were on board Olympic and were impressed with the ordeal paid for a plaque to be placed in one of Olympic's lounges to remember the event, and it said the following. This tablet, presented by the 59th Regiment United States Infantry, commemorates the sinking of the German submarine U-103 by Olympic on May 12, 1918, in latitude 49 degrees 16 minutes north, longitude 4 degrees 51 minutes west, on the voyage from New York to Southampton with American troops. Pretty spiffy, huh? I think so. This plaque just continues to certify how badass that moment was. Definitely a huge fangirl moment for me with the Olympic. She didn't take anyone's nonsense. 
During World War I, which ended November 11, 1918, HMT Olympic is reported to have carried up to 201,000 troops and other military personnel, burning roughly 347,000 tons of coal while traveling about 184,000 miles. She had an outstanding military service, and she survived the war to tell the tale. Olympic's unshakable nature during the war earned her the nickname Old Reliable, and her captain, Captain Hayes, would be knighted in 1919 for, quote, valuable services in connection with the transport of troops. She did go back into passenger service after the war, returning to Belfast, Ireland in August of 1919 for restoration back to RMS Olympic. Her interiors were not the same as before the war, being modernized and her boilers were converted from coal burning to oil firing. During construction and dry docking, there was a dent with a large crack in it discovered below the waterline, and it was later concluded to have been from a torpedo that hadn't detonated but had struck the ship. Later, historian Mike Chernside would go over all the evidence and find that it had probably been fired by SMU-53 on September 4, 1918, while Olympic was sailing in the English Channel. She truly was a survivor, and this dent and crack would be repaired. Unfortunately for my overly sentimental heart, she wouldn't look like we'd known when her and Titanic were twins, and her sister Britannic had not survived the war. After the refit, Olympic displaced 46,439 gross registered tons, and thus she regained the title of the largest British passenger liner built that was still afloat. But she wasn't the longest. That title went to the slightly longer Cunarder, RMS Aquitania. She would return to passenger service, taking her only trip of the year on June 25, 1920, that carried 2,249 passengers. 1921 was her peak year of her career after the war, transporting a record number of passengers, 38,000 in one year. Since neither of Olympic's younger sisters were still afloat, she initially didn't have any running mates for her service. After World War I, part of the wartime reparations that Germany was forced to repay were two ocean liners to White Star Line, which would be named Majestic and Homeric, and they would assist Olympic. The three operated successfully until the Great Depression reduced demand in 1930. During the 1920s, Olympic was trendy, popular, fashionable, and relevant. She was favored by many rich and famous people of the day, including then Prince of Wales Prince Edward, Mary Pickford, Marie Curie, Douglas Fairbanks, and even famous actor Charlie Chaplin. And according to his autobiography, famous actor Cary Grant, then 16-year-old Archibald Leach, first set sail to New York on RMS Olympic on July 21, 1920 on the exact same voyage that Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks were celebrating their honeymoon on. Insanely small world, isn't it? One of the main attractions for Olympic, of course, was her striking resemblance to the ill-fated Titanic, with many passengers sailing aboard her to almost reenact how it would feel to sail on Titanic. I can't lie, I'd do the same thing. Who wouldn't? Olympic's career post-war wouldn't be perfect, however. HMS Hawk wasn't the only collision she'd get herself into, with her being involved with another collision in New York City on March 22, 1924, when she was reversing from her berth and her stern smacked into the smaller liner Fort St. George that had crossed into Olympic's path. The collision caused immense damage to the small Fort St. George, of course, because of RMS Olympic's gargantuan size. At first, Olympic seemed like she'd only been damaged minutely. 
However, she was actually heavily damaged, with her stern post having been fractured and needing to replace the entire stern frame. Due to changes in the 1920s in the United States regarding immigration laws, the number of immigrants allowed to enter was restricted to about 160,000 people per year as of 1924. Because immigrants were the bread and butter of the transatlantic passenger trade, shipping lines were forced to shift focus toward catering to tourists in order to stay afloat. At the end of the year in 1927 and the beginning of the year in 1928, RMS Olympic was converted to carry tourist third-class passengers as well as first, second, and third class. This was an attempt to entice tourists who were traveling on a budget, with the new public rooms being constructed for this class, though by late 1931, second and tourist class would merge to become tourist class. In 1923, first class cabins were improved yet again by all receiving more bathrooms, a number of new cabins fitted with private facilities on B-deck, and a dance floor in the newly enlarged first class dining saloon. There'd be more improvements later, but in 1929, Olympic saw her best passenger manifest numbers since 1925, and there seemed to be a light at the end of the tunnel for her. Well, at least until the Great Depression rocked the entire world in the 30s. The shipping trade was almost killed off during this time, with families scraping to make it by and unable to afford luxurious tourist trips aboard beautiful liners. Up until 1930, the shipping trade saw roughly 1 million passengers a year on the transatlantic route alone, but it had dropped by more than half by 1934. And in the early 1930s, there was even more competition for Olympic, with larger and faster liners like Germany's SS Bremen, who took the blue ribbon from Mauritania, and SS Europa, France's SS Ile de France, and Italy's SS Rex. The remaining transatlantic passengers in the 1930s preferred these newer, up-to-date ships opposed to the dusty old Olympic, which averaged around 1,000 passengers per journey until 1930. As of 1932, her passenger manifest averaged less than half of that. Around 1932, Olympic's running mate, Homeric, would be withdrawn from service, leaving only Majestic and Olympic to run the Southampton to New York City route. Occasionally during the summer months, this would be augmented by the new MV Britannic or MV Georgic, with Olympic and a Majestic being employed in the summer during slack periods for recreational cruises from New York to Pier 21 in Halifax. Unfortunately, at the end of that year, passenger traffic continued to decline, and Olympic went in for an overhaul that took four months. She'd come out, quote, looking like new, according to her owners on March 5th, 1933, with her engines performing at their best, and she was able to reach speeds in excess of 23 knots, though typically she averaged less than that during regular transatlantic passenger service. Her passenger capacity was then listed as 618 first class, 447 tourist class, and 382 third class, given the steep decline of the immigrant trade. Despite being new and improved, she ran at a net operating loss for the first time during 1933 and 1934. 1933, in fact, was Olympic's worst year in history, carrying just barely over 9,000 passengers for the entire year. The passenger numbers went up ever so slightly in 1934, but not enough to be financially profitable, and thus started to spell the end of RMS Olympic. Also in May of 1934, White Star Line and Cunard Line would be merged, being named Cunard White Star. She would be involved in yet another collision in 1934. If you didn't know, in the approaches to New York City off Nantucket, there were what was called the Nantucket Lightships to light the way and mark areas of Nantucket. 
Olympic, as well as other liners, was well known for passing very close to these lightships. On May 15, 1934, around 11.06 a.m., while captained by Captain John W. Binks, Olympic was inbound toward New York City in a dense fog, homing in on the radio beacon of Nantucket lightship LV-117. The ship failed to turn in time and cut through the small lightship, similar to how she'd cut into U-103, with four of the lightship's crew being killed in the accident and seven being rescued. Three of these seven men would later die of their injuries, putting the death toll at seven men of the total 11 crew. The lightship's surviving crew, as well as Captain Binks, were interviewing soon after they'd reached New York City, with one crewman stating it happening in the flash and he didn't know how it happened. The captain was, of course, sorry it had happened, but he did say that Olympic reacted fast when lowering the lifeboats to rescue survivors, which an injured crewman later agreed with. After the Cunard White Star merger by the British government in May of 1934, there was enough funds for Cunard to then finish Queen Elizabeth and the famous Queen Mary. When they were finished, they took over Cunard White Star's express service, and so the fleet of older liners were gradually retired, becoming obsolete. Olympic would be withdrawn from service and left New York for the last time on April 5, 1935, returning to Britain and being laid up in Southampton. The new company threw around the idea of having her do summer cruises for a while, but this was eventually scrapped and Olympic went up for sale. She was almost bought by buyers who wanted to turn her into a floating hotel off of France, but this sadly never came to be. She was laid up for five months beside Mauritania, the two old girls bonding in the harbor together. Olympic would be sold to a member of parliament, Sir John Jarvis, for 97,500 pounds, and she would be partially demolished at Jero in order to provide work for the depressed region. On October 11, 1935, she left Southampton for the last time and arrived in Jero two days later, with scrapping beginning after the ship's fittings were auctioned off. Don't worry, a lot of the fittings still exist today. The superstructure was demolished between 1935 and 1937, with her hull being towed to Thos W. Ward's yard at Inverkeithing for final demolition on September 19, 1937. This final demolition would be completed by the end of 1937, and Olympic was gone. At the time, Olympic's chief engineer said, quote, I could understand the necessity if the old lady had lost her efficiency, but the engines are as sound as they ever were. He obviously had such love for his job and for the vessel, and it's sad that she ended up scrapped. But we should be grateful. Not all ships have such long careers and make it safely to the scrapyard. By her retirement, Olympic had made 257 round trips across the Atlantic, safely carrying 430,000 passengers on commercial voyages and traveling a staggering 1.8 million miles. Her fittings were sold off and still exist in various locations around the world, including her grand staircase still in existence at the White Swan Hotel in Alnwick, England. Her old tender ship, SS Nomadic, still exists in Belfast, Ireland in dry dock for tours. Unfortunately, dear listeners, this is the sad end for RMS Olympic. But she will always be the most badass, fierce sister of the Olympic class, and for that, I salute her and everyone who served aboard her. I hope this episode has done her some semblance of justice for a ship I hold dear to my heart. And I encourage you all to continue to celebrate this ship and share your favorite facts and stories about her in the comment section below. Thank you for tuning into the first episode of Titanic Month on Shipwreck Sunday. 
If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Tune in next Sunday for the beginning of Titanic's story, starting with the building of RMS Titanic. Also, tune in every Monday this month for a different White Star Line-themed bonus episode. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.